I invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24, as you know, we're making our way through this uh, book, which is um, it's a survival guide as, a, as well as a worship guide, and we're going to see that again this morning as God just uh, communicates in, to Israel the reality of, of what holiness means, and uh, it's an important lesson for the church today, and this morning we're going to be uh, looking at uh, verses 10 through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> chapter Excuse me. Chapter 24 contains um, some uh, issues related to the worship concerning the lamps and the bread for the tabernacle. But I'd like to focus our attention this morning on verses 10 uh, through the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who hear him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. And thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father in heaven, Lord, these are sobering words, and I pray, Lord, that you would give us a revelation of who you are in your holiness and the beauty of our Lord Jesus and his name. Uh, Lord, that we would be uh, today uh, molded by your word and by the truth that you reveal here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our text this morning is another uh, bracing dose of reality concerning the character of God and what it means to live in the presence of God. Uh, The story that we have here this morning probably sounds harsh to you, maybe even a little barbaric. Uh, This sounds like something the Taliban would do. Uh, It doesn't seem to fit our modern Western cultural sensitivities. It's hard for us to imagine anything being uh, this important that it would require a death sentence such as this, being stoned to death. I've mentioned before that the book of Leviticus is is, uh, meant for Israel to orient them to the reality of God because they come out of Egypt with assumptions about the gods or about about the God of Israel. And they they dearly need to be reminded or told, taught what God is actually and truly like, the reality of the living God. If you go to work for an electric power company, uh, one of the first things they'll do is they'll give you some training uh, in safety. 
And they'll talk to you about the, the deadly power of electricity, particularly the, power, the deadly power of amperage. You need to know those things. Ignorance about such things could very quickly lead to your own death. Well, in a similar fashion here, as God has gathered his people at Mount Sinai, and he's, he's come to dwell with them in the tabernacle, he is informing them about basic facts of life in the presence of a thrice holy God. The God who had so powerfully and, and with great devastation rescued Israel out of Egypt, well, that God is not to be taken lightly even by those who've been rescued. And the truth is, friends, that we uh, today are in every bit as much in need of such training as ancient Israel ever was. We live in a pagan world where the existence of God is routinely easily denied, uh, where the name of God is routinely blasphemed, and the commands of God are routinely ignored even by those who profess to be Christians. David Wells, over 20 years ago, made the observation that the thought of God rests lightly on our culture. There's no weight to it. There's no significance to the thought of God so that it impresses itself upon us and molds us according to the reality and the character of God. There are even many who profess to be Christian um, or who profess to believe in God, and yet they have no sense that their faith, whatever it might be, ought to actually impact them, mold them, change the way that they think and how they live. Uh, Well, we live then in this culture that... um, ignores God in so many ways, and yet the simple fact is that no matter what you believe about God, even if you don't believe there is a God, the fact is you still live in his world, God's world, and you exist by the power of God's hand, and if he is to remove that hand for a moment, you will cease to exist, and no matter what you think about God, you will stand before him on the last day. And you'll give an account for your life. And no matter what you think about God, he still thinks very highly of himself. And he takes his name with utmost seriousness. And that's the story we have in Leviticus 24. It's a very simple and straightforward story. A young man was living in the camp of Israel, the tribe of Dan. His mother was an Israeli, his father was Egyptian. We don't know if the father was there in the camp with them or whether he remained back in Egypt. Uh, We're not told his name, which is unusual because, as you know, in the Bible, people are always identified by their father's name. But this man is identified by his mother's name, she being a member of the covenant community. The implication seems to be that this man, uh, his father, has been no help to him spiritually. Uh, That if 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 his father is present... Uh, He is still Egyptian, not only by blood, but by religious allegiance. And so the young man, like father, like son, maybe we could say. He gets into an altercation with another man, an Israelite man, in the camp. And in the context of that fight, in the heat of the moment, the young man blasphemed the name and cursed. The name, of course, is the name of God, Yahweh. In his anger, this man um, took the name of the Israelite God and used it as a curse against this Israelite man. Now, we need to understand the precise nature of the offense. It is not 
just simply that he took the name of God on his lips. As you know, that Jews, in reverence of God's name, would not even speak his name. A pious Jew wouldn't, wouldn't dream of taking God's name on his lips, lest he somehow sin against the name. But that is not the sin. The sin is <clears throat> that he used the holy name of God, which stands for God himself. He used the holy name of God in a trite, thoughtless, self-serving, and wicked way. He, he used the holy name of God to serve his, his own anger, to pronounce his own judgment. He blasphemes God's name by using that precious name as a curse. We have a, a sense, of course, that names mean something. If, if um, someone uh, if it tells you, I heard someone uh, cursing your name, you're, you're going to take that personally. Uh, your name and yourself very closely identif- identified. And, and, and so um, in a, in, that's a very small picture of, of how God takes his name. His name, when God reveals his name, this is my name, he's revealing himself. The two are, are synonymous. Well, those who heard the blasphemy brought him to Moses, we're told. They, they clearly understood that something awful had happened. Something terrible had taken place. Something profoundly serious. Unlike today, when, uh, where people blaspheme the name of God and, and people laugh or simply shrug it off, there's, there's, there's no concern. The Israelites have a spiritual sensitivity that, that God is actually real. They had seen the plagues in Egypt. They'd seen the devastation. Uh, they'd seen God open the, the, the way through the Red Sea. Uh, they had seen God descend on Mount Sinai so that the mountain shook. And, there, and, and the smoke and the fire and the trumpet was terrifying. They'd seen Aaron's two sons be put to death by consuming fire from the Lord. God was not a vague spiritual idea to them. He was very real. And he was frightening. He was present and worthy of fear. And so when this young man cursed using the name of God, the people around did not shrug it off. They knew something tragic had happened. Something terrible and serious. Something that had to be addressed immediately. And so they brought him to Moses. We're told that the man was put in custody until the will of the Lord should be clear to them. And we need to notice also then that it is not Moses who judges the man. It's not Moses who pronounces the sentence. God is the judge of Israel, and this man is brought to the Lord in that sense. And it is the Lord who pronounces the, judge, who pronounces the sentence, who renders the judgment. Lethem says God himself was the author of law in Israel, not the king or some human authority as in Mesopotamia law. The sentence is, is sobering at, at the very least. For the family of this man and for the man himself, it, it's devastating. It's the death sentence. Immediate. Verse 14, bring out of the camp the one who cursed 
and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. That's the sentence that God renders. There are several things I want to highlight in that sentence. Uh, we'll look at just very quickly the place and the pollution, the penalty, the participation, and the principle. If you're taking notes, that might be helpful. The place, the man is to be brought outside the camp. Uh, the camp, you see, is God's holy house. It's where God lives with his people. And uh, as we've seen in the laws of uncleanness, unclean things cannot dwell in the camp. And uh, sin needs to be addressed. And this sin, being so serious, needs to be removed from the camp. And the man needs to be removed from the camp. He's, he's filthy with the, with the crime of blasphemy. Uh, and he needs to be put out, excommunicated, cast out of the presence of the Lord. He, he can't remain in the camp. He can't stay in the house. It's just untenable given what he's done and who God is. Notice, secondly, the pollution. Those who heard the offense were required to lay their hands on this man. The primary purpose seems to be to show that those who heard the blasphemy were in some sense also defiled by the act. Remember, sin is an uncleanness that defiles and it pollutes. And so when on the Day of Atonement, not only do the sins of Israel need to be atoned for, but the, the tabernacle needs to be atoned for. There needs to be blood sprinkled on the ark and on the, on the tabernacle and the altar because it's been defiled by Israel's sin. Well, those who had heard this, this blasphemy have been defiled, polluted by the sin, and as they lay, put their hands on the head of this man, it is an act of confessing that pollution, acknowledging the truth of the defiling. And as those who had heard firsthand the blasphemy, then they are also required to participate firsthand in the sentencing. Their testimony is what validates the judgment, proves this man is worthy. Now, it would not be hard to come up with arguments as to why this young man should be shown some mercy. After all, uh, you can hear a defense attorney argue, he's a young man. Young men do stupid things. Sort of, their, it goes with their nature. Ir irrational, impulsive things. He's, he's a young man. And he's from a spiritually unhealthy home. It's, very, it's possible his father's not even there. So he, he's from this broken home, or if his father is there, he's no spiritual help to him. He doesn't understand the sacredness of the name. He, he, he didn't realize what he was doing. You could argue that, well, this was an act of passion. Who hasn't said something wicked and wrong in a moment of anger? It's, it's what people do. So this young man, he was in a fight. It's not premeditated. It's not like he was looking for an occasion. He got in a fight and lost his head and said something he shouldn't have said. There are, there are reasonable arguments that you could put forward why uh, this young man should be shown mercy. But none of them avail. None of them matter. None of them matter. Maybe you've had uh, the privilege of being pulled over by a police officer. And you were doing maybe, I don't know, 15 miles, 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. I've tried this. In the past, and, and the, uh, maybe not 20, but it's... 
I remember going through a town, I don't remember where we were, we were south, Joanne and I were taking a nice drive and, and we rolled through town and come out the other side and the police officer pulling us over. And um, so we stopped and um, he said, do you know how fast you're going? I said, yeah, I think we do about 45. I was feeling very comfortable. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, did you see the speed limit sign? I said, uh, sir, I don't think I did. Uh, 25 miles an hour. And, and I protested, well, I, I appreciate that, but I didn't see the sign. And his response basically was, I could care less. <clears throat> and he wrote me a ticket. He said, um, maybe you've tried this, and you, and you have reasons, right, why uh, in this unique instance, you'll, you have a, a reasonable excuse. And, and, and the officer just doesn't, doesn't care. It, it, it actually doesn't matter. The law says 25 miles an hour. I was doing 45 miles an hour. Uh, the law stands. It, it, you don't have a small print there in, unless you didn't see the sign. It stands. God being God, the glory of his name stands. So none of the excuses that you could bring for the, on the behalf of this young man, none of it matters. It, it doesn't matter. The holiness of God matters. The glory of God's name matters. This is what God meant when he said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain because the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's what that phrase meant. That's what it means. That when you do something like this young man did, the Lord will not hold him guiltless. And so no matter what reasons men might find to make excuses, God doesn't find any reasons for excuse. And while other sins can be atoned for by the sin of sacrifice, not this one. There's no, there's no atoning for this sin by animal sacrifice. The text says, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. The guilt will not be removed. So the penalty, verses 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Commentators point out that in the surrounding nations of the day, there were many penalties that, um, there were many crimes that resulted in a death penalty. So if, if you stole something, uh, you could be put to death for that. If you, if you uh, said something against the king or a high off, uh, official, you could be put to death for that. There, there were a variety of things that um, called for the death penalty. But in, in, the, in Israel, in God's house, there are only two th capital offenses. Blasphemy and murder. And for a very related reason. So in verse 17, we're told, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. If you murder someone, then the law requires that you be put to death. But notice, these two crimes are linked by a common reality, and that is the glory of God. Blasphemy is worthy of death because of the infinite worth and value, the majesty of God's being. And to offend the, the being of God in this way requires death. Murder is worthy of death because it is the destruction of someone made in the image of that God. 
Human life matters because of what it is. It's, it is an imaging of God himself. And so God pronounces this penalty because of that reason. Notice also the participation. The whole community was called to uphold the glory of the name. Quote, all the congregation shall stone him. This is a test for Israel, isn't it? The issue on the table is, will the people of Israel reverence God's holy name above all things? Will the people of Israel magnify the worth of their God by being willing to participate in the just sentencing of those who violate it? And to fail here for Israel would be to fail in basic covenant faithfulness. It can be easily be uh, illustrated maybe uh, in, in terms of a marriage. Uh, imagine a woman at work. She's talking with her friends. And uh, they're, they're in the, uh, the lunch area and having this silly conversations. Uh, and, and the women start demeaning their husbands. After all, men are men, and they, and they say and do strange and sometimes disgusting things, and, and everyone's having a good laugh, and now it's your turn, and everyone's looking at you, waiting for you to tell your story, to take your turn at demeaning your husband, and you have a choice to make, and there's no escaping it. Will you surrender to peer pressure? Or will you honor your husband? And it's about basic covenant faithfulness. That's what's on the table. Well, as God's covenant people, we have a covenant obligation to honor his name. It's not, um, it's not a, a big thing for God to ask. It, it's, it's just a matter of, of, of very, very basic covenant faithfulness? Will we honor the name of our God? And will we do it as a, as a community? And the reformers enshrined this covenant and communal obligation in regard to honoring God's name uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 36. The question is, is blasphemy of God's name by swearing and cursing really such serious sin that God is angry also with those who do not do all they can to help prevent it and forbid it. So is it so serious that God is not only angry with the one taking his name in vain, but, but that he's also angry with those who, who do not do all that they can do to prevent it and to forbid it? And the answer is, yes, indeed. No sin is greater. No sin makes God more angry than blaspheming his name. That is why he commanded the death penalty for it. And so we see that the community as a whole is called to uphold the name of God and to, be, to participate in enacting the righteous judgment of God as, uh, as a sign of their valuing the name of God. This isn't Israel being vindictive it's, it's Israel, in a sense, saying this matters so much to us. The name and the glory and the worth of God matters so much that we will participate then in preventing the blaspheming of his name. 
Finally, the principle. In verses 17 through 22, God lays down the, the basic principle of justice that underscores the penalty that he's just prescribed. The basic principle of God's justice is that the penalty must fit the crime. And so we see in verses 17 through 22, uh, this, this very brief summary of that, uh, explaining that principle. If you take a human life, your life shall be taken. If you take an animal's life, you need to make it good. You need to, you need to make restitution to the owner. If you injure someone, uh, it, as you have done, so shall it be done to you. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now we know in other places in the Bible, this was usually done through compensation. You would have to pay. But the, the principle is very simple. The penalty has to fit the crime. And that underscore, underscores the, the sober penalty of our story. You see, the death penalty fits the crime. This is not God just being angry and lashing out in, in, a, in a moment of anger. This is just God being God, being holy and righteous and just. And, that, and, and it tells us then that, that death is the only fitting and just and appropriate response to the, the terrifying, awful sin of blaspheming the name, the name of God, using God's name in vain, so that, that the, the horror of the, of the sin necessitates the penalty because of the, the worth of God. The, the, the death penalty is, is required in the most fundamental sense by simple justice, because of who God is. And so, verse 23. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They stoned him. We don't know how, but people picked up rocks, and they threw those rocks until the man perished. Commentators believe that the pile of stones would have been left there covering the body uh, as an ongoing reminder to all those who pass by of the reality of God's holy name and the grave danger of taking it lightly. So that's the story. How do we apply that today? We don't think much about blasphemy. We don't hear much about it except in the Muslim world where people, often Christians, are persecuted, charged with blaspheming the name of Allah. Muslims seem to be one of the few people in the world, as far as we hear on the news, that take blasphemy seriously. Is blasphemy still a thing in the New Testament New Testament Christianity, and of course it is, isn't it? Paul was a, a blasphemer. He confesses it in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He was a blasphemer. That's intriguing because uh, if you think about who Paul was, blasphemy seems to be the last sin he could possibly be guilty of. Paul, remember, was a Pharisee. Uh, Paul is a Pharisee. Saul back then, would never dream of even mentioning the name of God, much less use it in any way um, to desecrate it. 
It just wasn't going to happen. He had most likely never mentioned the name of God his entire life. And so in, in his mind and the, the mind of everyone who around, right, Paul was as far removed from what this young man had done as it's humanly possible. So how was Paul a blasphemer? And the answer, of course, is Paul reviled the name of Jesus Christ. He despised the name of Jesus. In fact, he sought to to put to death those who loved the name of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul despised the name of Jesus and spoke against the name of Jesus right up until the moment he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And in that precise moment, in the presence of the divine glory of the second person of the, the Trinity, as Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In, in that moment, Paul realized who he was. He was a vile, base, wicked blasphemer of God. Fully deserving the sentence of death. Friends, we live in a blasphemous culture. We live in a culture where the name of Jesus is used routinely for a laugh or for a political point, or most commonly for a curse word. I remember, I don't know how long ago it's been, watching a movie where there was not a single swear word, not even what we would call barnyard words, except the name of Jesus Christ. It matters so little that it can be inserted in a movie where they're clearly taking precautions concerning language. You see, friends, the glorious name of Jesus is blasphemed, and no one in our culture thinks anything about it, and sadly, not even professing Christians. One of the areas where Christians most commonly participate in blasphemy is through our entertainment, particularly through the, the movies and the shows that we watch. Uh, the Lord's convicted me on this, has been for some time. And my question is, what are we going to do about it? If God holds his name in such high regard, and if God fully expects us as his covenant community to do the same, how can we continue to enjoy entertainment that happily and routinely blasphemes the name of Jesus? Some of us have become so desensitized to it, you don't even hear it anymore. So if the name of Jesus matters to us, and surely it should matter to us, then why are we entertaining ourselves by listening to others use his name as a curse? Better, well, let me say this. Am I saying that you should never watch a movie that takes God's name in vain? Well, I'm not going to answer that for you. What I will say is that Joanne and I are striving to just do that. And that doesn't make us better or worse. It's just that if we're not willing to put away our entertainment for the name of Jesus, then what possibly could we be willing to put away? With, put away? You see, let me just say, in light of our text this morning, are you confident that God is unconcerned about it? 
Does it seem appropriate for those who love the name of Jesus to entertain ourselves that way? Better, if we truly loved the name of Jesus, would we want to entertain ourselves that way? This just comes, this just comes right where we live. And I, and I can't help but feel, that, and there's other ways. There's, there's other ways we, we take the name of God in vain. We take the name of God in vain when we have hard thoughts about God's providence. When we charge God with wrong because of what's going on in our life. When we charge God with wrong, we're taking the name of God very lightly. When we bear the name of Christian and yet sin unrepentantly and very easily in our, in our mouth, in our attitudes, our actions, we're, we're taking the name of God in vain. We're happy to bear the name, the name Christ and yet we're committed to going our own way. That's taking the name of God lightly. That's bearing God's name in vain. And I think God is, I think he means Leviticus 24. But thankfully, that's not the last word from God regarding blasphemy. There's a gospel for blasphemers. God's word related to blasphemy doesn't end with Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 or Leviticus 24. Uh, the gospel, you see, friends, is the incredibly good news that, that the very one that I have sinned against by taking his name in vain, that one loved me and gave his life for me. The very Jesus that, that we have despised in thoughts and words and deeds, that Jesus, being the very Son of God, came to this earth to give up his life so that our blasphemy could be forgiven. The sin of the, the blasphemer in Leviticus 24 could not be covered by the sacrifice of the animals, but the sacrifice of the Son of God is sufficient. It's greater than all of our sin. The greatest sins can be washed away by the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, and that's the beauty of our Lord Jesus. Paul would be exhibit A. He was a blasphemer, fully forgiven. All of us are exhibit B. We have taken the name of God lightly, and you maybe have even cursed God in a moment of anger. John Bunyan wrestled with that, that he, he cursed the ways of God, the, the, the providences of God. And, and the blasphemy of it weighed on him. He struggled to believe, how could he possibly be forgiven? But he read the gospel, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. And, and if you've wrestled maybe with, with, with assurance because of your, your blasphemous thoughts, you can take comfort in the truth of the gospel. God sent his son Jesus so that we might be forgiven. God sent his son Jesus who has the name above every name so that we could be at peace with God and we could be brought back into the camp. We could be to live in favor and the grace of God. So then, brothers and sisters, as those who have been miraculously delivered from the death that we deserved, should we not then do all that we can to honor the name of him who died for us? Should we not be people who stand boldly for the name of Jesus Christ, people who, who love the name of Jesus Christ. Psalm 5 verse 11 says, may all those who love your name exult in you. And that's my prayer from, for you this morning, for me this morning, that as we love the name of Jesus, we will exult in him. And we'll put aside everything that undermines 
the beauty, the glory of Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. May God grant it. Amen. Our God and Father in heaven, you are a holy God. And you love your name. And it is right that you should. And you sent your son, the second person of the Trinity, who willingly died for blasphemers. And being obedient even unto death, as he glorified your name, Father, you gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And Father, we confess that we've been flippant and casual in how we've thought about your name. But Father, I I thank you for the convicting work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who treasure the name of Jesus, that we stand for the name of Jesus, and that we, Lord, resist anything that would in any way undermine or sin against the beauty of his name. Lord, I thank you that as we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us. And Lord, I just pray that you would lead us into a a new path of holiness today. That, Lord, we would just make it our aim to be people who love your name and exalt in your name until we see you, Lord, come again in the clouds of glory. Thank you so much for a gospel for people like us and and thank you so much for a new path that we can live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna respond with a hymn. Let us love and sing in wonder. Let us praise our Savior's name. And let's, let's do that not only in song, but as we, as we live this week. Let's stand together and sing.
as you go this week, go with those words. He is worthy. He is worthy. Worthy of our life, worthy of our love, worthy of our obedience, worthy of any sacrifice we make. Jesus Christ is worthy. And now as you go, go with his grace and peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Thank you.